perspective. Uh, this oh, is what are you talking about? <laughs> um, <laughs> this week we will be discussing Sullivan's <laughs> travels. Uh, the Criterion Collective comes out of uh, Pomona, California. <laughs> anyhow, anyhow, I'm not even going to do that right out, now. Out of the DAW Center of the Arts. The DAW yeah, Center yeah, yeah. of the Arts is uh, yeah. something, something, something. Not for profit. Yeah, Pomona, based in Cal Pomona, California. Yeah, yeah. With well, the dim lights. Now, now that uh, now that we're on the well, now that we're on the internet, we service the world. So. Oh, I ought to introduce the film yeah. this week is the Preston Sturgis, nineteen forty one, what they like to call screwball comedy, uh, Sullivan's Travels, starring starring Joel McCrea and uh, Veronica Lake. I selected this because our resident bard and pessimist Matt Cedillo has <laughs> <laughs> had us watch, uh, why can I never say it right? Potter uh, Ponchali? Yeah, we'll say it again. Uh, Potter Ponchali. Potter Ponchali, which is a, which we figured out is not a name, but it's a saying <laughs> for the, the, the the uh, the song of the little road that I can remember um, a rather it's a somewhat bleak but very powerful film about a family living in rural India and I just felt like it was time to remember our humor so I wanted to pick a movie that was humorous but also I thought very poignant and I think I need to point out that Sullivan's Travels, pardon me, I have a vitamin in my mouth, so I'm chewing. Sorry, everybody. Um, Sullivan's Travels was was actually released on November, I believe it was, no, I'm sorry, December 5th of 1941. Wow. Now, for you history buffs, you'll remember that December 7th, of 1941 is a very significant day in American history because of course that was the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And it, it marked the entrance of the United States uh, into World War II. Prior to that, the United States really, they said about 80% of the country wanted nothing to do with this war that started in Europe in 1939. But in the wake of the bombing of Pearl Harbor the U.S. readily got involved. Now, what is also significant, what a lot of us don't remember, is the Great Depression actually did not end in 1939 or 1940. Mm. The Great Depression was actually still going on. The end of the Great Depression is literally marked by the United States entrance into World War II. So when this film was shot, and being prepared for release, the Great Depression was still happening. And that kind of puts us into an interesting context for this movie. The social significance of the movie cannot be denied. And I would like to add that Preston Sturgis was the very first writer-director in Hollywood. Mm. There had never been one before. Often people were writers and the system liked to keep writers, as it seems like they often still do, <laughs> quite in the background, quite, the, writers were kind of considered the low end of the totem pole 
and had very little to do with production once the screenplay was written. But Preston Sturgis changed that. And they say he probably opened the door for auteurs like Orson Welles. So now here we have not only a screwball comedy, but a socially relevant commentary combined with someone who broke barriers in Hollywood. Kind of changes the way we look at this movie now. And by the way, Veronica Lake was not Preston Sturge's first or even second or third choice. She actually had to lobby to get this role. And I think she's phenomenal. And I think the chemistry between her and Joel McRae is phenomenal. So with that, we're talking about a story of a Hollywood producer or director, excuse me, who decides he wants to make the movie Old Brother Where Art Thou, because he feels that all of his screwball comedies just aren't socially relevant enough and he wants to talk about the suffering of humanity, though he has never really known much about it. So with that, I'd love to hear what you guys thought and what your impressions were. Well, I'm really, I'm really interested I'm in um, the, the fact that, I mean, I, I kind of like, I mean, um, I can hold, I can, I just really have more questions than, than, than the statements to, at this point. Um, maybe, maybe you know a little more about, but, um, um, but I can wait for, you know, if Dave wants to chime in before, before, before you answer him. But he, like, made, like, four films in, like, two years. I mean, like, when he, when he first, when he got out the gates. Like, yeah. he made, like, The Great McGinty, and then, um, yeah. the, the, uh, I know it was the first one, but then, then there was, like, there's another one that's really famous. A long, uh, uh, called, the Lady Eve. Lady Eve, yeah, yeah. So, so, so he, makes, he makes, like, three, four films within, like, two years. I'm just kind of curious, like, how did, how, what is the backstory of, like, this guy saying, okay, not only am I going to write, now I'm going to write and direct. I'm going to write and direct four films in a, a year and a half and uh, you're just going to do it. <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting background. I don't know, David, if you want to get into this at all, or should I just. Oh, I go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. So Preston Sturgis had a very interesting life. So his mother divorced his father. This was not common hmm. early turn of the century. She just sem- simply said she got bored. She got bored with Preston Sturgis's biological father and they moved to Chicago and she married a stockbroker. Now, what she was doing was she was going to mm. Europe frequently and she would bring young Preston with her. So Preston Sergis was surrounded by culture most of his life. In fact, his mother was such good friends with Isadora Duncan, the dancer, that it's said that she's the one who gave this, the uh, scarf to Isadora Duncan that ultimately got caught in the wheel of a, uh, a convertible car in, I believe it was in France and choked her to death. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's how, that's how Isadora Duncan died. Her very long scarf got caught in the wheel of a convertible and that was it. And she was, she was a, a phenomenal, I mean, she broke barriers in dancing. She oh, really wow. is considered to be the mother of modern dance. So this is what mm. Preston Sturges is growing up with. now. When he's about 30, he has a failed marriage to a debutante who her family never wanted him to be with in the first place. Mm. And he, um, he wants to jump out of the window of the Ambassador Hotel, which if you guys have been to Chicago, the Ambassador Hotel is still there. It's a beautiful old hotel. They have all kinds of photographs of all the people who stayed there. He was one of mm. them. He contemplated suicide. He contemplated leaping out the window and just then somebody else did it instead. Somebody He saw somebody else jump out the window. <laughs> and oh, decided wow. that was the end of his suicidal thoughts. <laughs> yeah. And 
and and he had dated this actress who basically Preston Sergis was like the god Apollo in the Greek pantheon. She had very bad luck and love, just terrible luck and love. Let's just say, mm. sometimes by his own doom, but often by the women who he picked. Uh, he picked women that he thought were were like his mother, very artistic and very. That's his own doing. Yeah, that does it every time because it turned out they just one said, you know, you're I only date you to like get material from you. You're boring or something like this. He thought, wow, I'm just going to write. I'm just going to write a play. He started writing plays that became really popular on Broadway. Cesar Romero, before he was famous, was one of the actors who was in his plays. And one day he was watching a director. He felt butcher his writing, which isn't the first time that certainly happened. And he said, you know, it seems to me the director is like the prince of the set. And it seems to me that he's calling all the shots. And it seems to me that they're not really doing right by my work. Mm. And if I can become a director. So what he would do when he wrote is he would act out all the parts out loud. Like a spoken, he was like one of the first spoken word artists. He would would act out the parts out loud. That's how he would know if the dialogue was working because he was very dialogue driven. And some mm. people said he was so powerful in the way he would act it out. Like people could see he had a director inside of him. Well, he goes to Paramount Studios and he says, you know, I will give you, it wasn't the great, was it the great McGinty that was his first one? Was that his first one, Matt? The first one he directed. He said, I will give you this script for a dollar if you'll let me direct it. And they were like, because he was getting 17000 you know, $518,000 mm. screenplay, which you can imagine in the 30s, that was a lot of money. He was one of the highest paid screenwriters. Mm. And so he said, I'll give it to you for a dollar oh, if you wow. let me direct. That's how he got into directing. And he said, now I'm really in for it. A lot of people are going to hate me because I'm a screenwriter and director, which really hadn't been done before. So for a writer kind of influence on the movie was a really big deal. Um, and he just, I think he always kind of felt like he was in a race against the clock. They say he didn't sleep a lot. He was always working. He was kind of a workaholic. And mm-hmm. I think he kind of was very aware of his own mortality. And he always said it's kind of a matter of talent, but also a matter of luck. So I think he also saw that maybe I only have so much time in Hollywood, which turned out to be true. He had about seven years where he was making like two films a year, which is almost insane. He was writing and directing and sometimes producing these films. At one time he was producing with Howard Hughes. So it's just, he was a very, I mean, he's, I think, one of the under-heralded, you know, auteurs of Mm -hmm. the golden age that people don't always talk about, maybe because, you know, drama was more popular than comedy at that time, especially. Now it's kind of flip-flopped, but yeah, uh... it's amazing. So, I mean, so kind of like, you know, he was rich and he worked hard. <laughs> well, he was, you know what, actually the women he did, when he, when his first, I think it was a Hutton, when his first wife left him, he was actually broke. That's why he went back to live with his dad and thought about jumping out of a window of the ambassador. He was completely broke. But he came, but he came, oh. he, he came so from. He, uh, so he was a stockbroker before he got into writing? Is his that? father was. Oh, okay. He didn't know oh, what he yeah. wanted to be. He was like, I don't, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be, what am I going to be? Am I going to be a gigolo? Am I going to be, I don't know what I'm going to be. You know? well, it, it just, it just kind of mm. echoes, but it, it echoes the movie, right? Because like, um, yeah. because in the movie he says, you know, when, when, when you know, not to get cut to a head, but when he's in jail, he says like, 
directors don't get thrown in jail for you know slapping up a a, a boxcar guy, right? That's right. Okay, that, that that okay, but like it's also like um, people who just have to write for a living, mm -hmm. who are like just lucky to be there, just lucky to be on the lot. That's it. They don't get to write and direct, right? So it's kind right. of the fact that he had all this to fall back on, put him in a position to sell things. I mean, because like you know, if you're just writing, you don't. <laughs> No, and I'm not saying this to criticize him. I'm saying that you know it's it's just it's 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 just the mechanics of how it works, right? So this is right. why someone who has to sell scripts for a living to pay, you know, to or or, or lose, you know, the the, the dream that they <laughs> they built for themselves um, can't do that. They can't just be like, "Well, fuck mm -hmm. you, I'll sell something for a dollar. Let me direct." You know, they, they, like they're not in a position to do that. So he was he was in a different position than a lot. He of was in a different position, but that that I mean. At one point, he wanted to stay with his father, not trot off to Europe. And his father said, well, you know, I'm not your real father, even though he had adopted him. I kind of crushed him, actually. It mm. really messed him up. The thing is, he had something that a lot of screenwriters didn't have in Hollywood, which was he'd already been a success on Broadway. Mm. He'd already made quite a bit from his writing on Broadway. That's what gave, it wasn't so much family money. Um, because I think by the time his mother passed away, I don't know about his father, but I think by the time she passed away, there really wasn't much there. And so he knew what it was like to be privileged, but broke. That's a very interesting position to be in. That in some ways is almost worse than having grown up in poverty. When you grow up in poverty, there's a certain resilience, but when you grow up with a certain amount of privilege and then you know what it is to not have anything. That's why you hear a lot of stories. Um, I think that it was the great McGinty that might've been based on a politician who did end up killing himself at 50 because he like had nothing left. Or the people who were jumping out of windows, it wasn't as rampant mm -hmm. as the picture they paint, but people were jumping. There were really people jumping out of windows or off buildings during the great crash. They had known affluence and they did not know how to survive without it. They mm -hmm. didn't have that resilience. So I really think that line as you mentioned, Matt, when he says, you know, like, for example, I haven't suffered enough to make this, and I don't want to give too much away at this point, but I haven't suffered enough. I think that Preston Sturgis, you're, you're in this sense, you're right, Matt, still recognized that he had come from a certain privilege. While he had known suffering emotionally, or he had known what it was to be broke or not know what he was going to do, it wasn't the same as someone who just has nothing and has never had anything and probably never will. Right. right? Well, I'm, not comparing, I'm not even comparing him to someone with nothing. I'm comparing somebody who has like a steady job that they don't want to endanger, right? So you have That's all true. these riders, like 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 a Mankiewicz or something like that, right? So someone like that, mm -hmm. they're not really in the mindset to be like, you know, I've known wealth, I've known poverty. It's a roll of the dice, you know. Like they don't right. have that kind of mindset. They're the mindset of like, I got this good thing, I don't want to lose. You know what I mean? Like that, you know what I'm saying? So I, it's not even a criticism of Sturges. It's more like a. Um, an observation. An observation, like it, it had to be someone like Preston Surgeons. Because when I think of Preston Surgeons, I'm gonna get more into this and I definitely want to hear from Dave. But like when you, you mentioned the drama versus comedy, what I really think of Preston Surgeons is he got kind of overshadowed um, by Billy Wilder. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Yeah. director of like, you know, comedy, but tragic comedy, mm. like that kind of like it's comedy. Noir. Noir. Yeah, where, 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 where there's more, there's more going on. There's a deeper level. Yeah. Yeah. So like yeah. very some very similar stuff, but like Billy Wilder ends up like overshadowing. But it was Preston Sturges who actually opened the door. Correct. So that that's kind of interesting to me. Huh? But I'm sorry. That, that, no, that, you know, I, I'm fascinated. I I love this. I love this kind of talk, and I love this kind of these kind of questions because to realize that 
In fact, when you watch the movies of Preston Sturges, some of the dialogue in Lady Eve, some of the dialogue in, in our movies of today, Sullivan's Travels, for you who are just watching, this is the movie we're covering, Sullivan's Travels. And a lot of it came from his real life experience. So understanding that someone who is an auteur is going to frequently do that because they are responsible for the pacing of the film, the dialogue of the film, the storyline, the vision, uh, managing the set, casting, because uh, Preston Sturges also frequently cast the same people. Like, like almost like a studio would do. It was almost mm. like he was kind of his own mini studio within the studio system. And he was rather independent because at one time he worked, I think, it, I think one of his first print plays he ever wrote was The Invisible Man for mm. Universal Studios. And then he moved over to Paramount. So, I mean, he also had something that a lot of other, the writers that Matt was talking about, people who we would consider kind of like staff writers today, you know, who work in teams. That was something Preston Surges also didn't do, which was very unusual, by the way. Writing in teams was extremely common. Someone writing their own screenplay, being the sole author of that screenplay, was very unusual. Preston Surges also broke those boundaries too, which he said a lot of people are going to be mad at me for this too, because I'm. this is not the common thing to do. And that gave him the ability mm. to go from studio to studio. This was very uncommon. Most actors who were megastars, like even Betty Davis, couldn't do that. The only reason she did The Little Foxes for who was it, Samuel Goldwyn, was because Samuel Goldwyn, they played cards. All the moguls played like big car, like card games. At one point, I think it was Jack Warner owed Samuel Goldwyn like something like over $300,000 in gambling debts, which you can imagine in the 1930s, 40s, that's a lot of money. That's like millions of dollars now. And he was like, okay, I'll, I'll try, if, you, if you'll give me Betty Davis, you know, Samuel Goldwyn said, if you, if you give me Betty Davis, like a trading card, he says, I'll, I'll forget the debt. And that's what happened. You know? I mean, it's crazy. This kind of stuff is so fascinating that that's wow. how some films were being made. And so Preston Sturgis really, he, he, he definitely had a lot of power. And I think that's also a testament to his talent because how many, how many writers were in a position that they could write an entire screenplay without a team and mm -hmm. it could be successful. Because I think it was Peter Bogdanovich who said the Lady Eve is still hailed as one of the greatest comedies of all time that so mm. many comedies were built from. So this is fascinating stuff. Preston Sturgis undoubtedly was talented. There's no doubt about it. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't help but think about this movie, um, you know, in the context of, um, what was it? I, I looked at last week with Pater uh, Panchali, I looked at the release date for uh, Grapes of Wrath, uh, the literary adaptation of John Steinbeck. And yeah, as you know, you were referring to, um, you know, uh, the, the Great Depression being, very still ongoing and and that being a film about the great depression while the great depression is still ongoing so i think that kind of ushers in with uh kazan um, uh, a new wave of filmmakers of social message filmmakers there had already been you know social uh message films in uh in russia um in britain you had the social message documentary um we know that Italian neorealism was on its way. So there maybe there were, you know, the precursors to that even in Italy already. But there was already throughout the globe um, this wave of, of um, 
of uh, social message films. And so I think that what's interesting, what makes this film so interesting is that it exists at this juncture, at this point in which there's this old mode of Hollywood filmmaking, the screwball comedy, the comedy of errors, the literary adaptation, the, you know, a lot of these uh, stock genres in which the convention was to uh, portray the rich. That's why I think it's interesting that our main character is this very wealthy director, who's not only, we get a sense that not only is he wealthy because his films have been so successful, but we get the sense that he may have come from wealth as well, you know, or at least like you said, Gene, like, like the real life Preston Sturges, that he came from privilege. Maybe it was unsteady wealth, you know, but, but really he never really knew poverty or never really knew need. And this is a man with two butlers who feels comfortable having those two butlers. So there's a little bit of like, uh, you know, may, maybe he hasn't known them his entire life, but it's not like, you know, he's completely uncomfortable with them either, which would clue you in to, you know, him you know, only being nouveau riche, you know, so, yeah, so he staff. comes, yeah, he's always surrounded by teams of people, this guy <laughs> is so pampered, like, I think there is a mention, actually, David, somewhere in the movie, I think he says something about graduating from Harvard, right, 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 yeah, like, so that's, super privileged, and guy. at this time, this is definitely still a time in which you basically only went to Harvard if you were super rich. There weren't, there wasn't anything else going on. There weren't, no. you know, these, these social programs and whatnot. You had to be from those, those extremely wealthy families. Um, so yeah, so I think what's interesting, what makes this film interesting is that it's like, in many ways, it seems like the natural Hollywood reaction is to acknowledge this new thing that's coming in of these, you know, social message films and like, well, you know, how can we do our own version of that? You know, are we, we're making fun of it, but we're also embracing it. So I think that that makes this a very interesting film and that opens it up to the whole thing about Hollywood is that this is one, you know, definitely one of the first meta films about Hollywood because, because I think they're recognizing that this new genre of film, of film and filmmakers is something different. That's something that's come out of the Hollywood system, but it's something different. So this movie cleverly is about a filmmaker and is about filmmaking in Hollywood. And, and I think because of that, you, you get these um, really clever things that are going on in this film. And um, what it really reminds me of, it actually, I think there's a great scene where, uh, you know, uh, where, where he's first traveling along, uh, 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 Joel McRae, uh, uh, Sullivan is first traveling along with Veronica Lake, who I guess she never gets a, a name in this movie. I guess she's she, the girl. The girl. <laughs> the girl. The girl, the blonde, you know, Which whatever. Which is kind of, I think, making fun of the whole casting, you know, couch thing. Uh, that's yeah. Thing we'll get into, but yeah. And so, but there's this great scene where they're having this, this thing, and um, it's kind of similar to a scene that we saw in um, that movie, Leave Her to Heaven, right? 
but it's also very similar and I, I, I to uh, a scene in scening uh, in, in the rain. Yeah. And I feel like there would not have been a scening in the rain, also a film about Hollywood and about filmmaking, a satire on Hollywood, were it not for Sullivan's travels. I feel like that car scene, you know, it's the same dynamic where the, uh, you know, the guy is asking, have you seen my movies? And the girl's like, oh yeah, they're all right. You know, they're <laughs> fine, <laughs> or, you know, whatever. <laughs> Very wounded, you know, by this. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I just I just thought that was great. That was great. There were a lot, of, lot of very see, clever moments. I want to say too that we have to also ask the question, you know, because he followed Preston Sturgis in, in, in terms of timeline. And, and as we mentioned, would there have been the Billy Wilders of the industry without Preston Sturgis? You know, it was Billy Wilder in 1950 who made Sunset Boulevard, mm. which was another uh, a very dark way of looking at Hollywood. But I, you wonder, would would there have been a Sunset Boulevard without, you know, without a Sullivan's Travels? And mm -hmm. I just, I, I think it's great the way it opens with the movie within the movie, where they're watching this terrible, this incredible drama and tragedy of these two guys fighting on a train. Trains end up playing a big role. And trains were really big in the 1940s, actually, because very few people could engage in any kind of air travel. You almost had to be wealthy to do that. There really wasn't much commercial airline travel uh, if you owned your own plane, which actually Veronica Lake ended up doing. But trains played a really huge role in, in transportation. We talked about that last week, you know, mm -hmm. with Potter Panchali, how the train played a significant role between the rural existence versus the urban existence. And certainly this was this was still true. It connected both coasts. It was a very important way to travel. And so you have these two guys fighting on a train and after it's over, I want to make brother our, you know, oh brother, we're out though. I want to do something so socially significant. And you know, of course, his his uh his one of his producers says, but with a little sex. <laughs> and he's like, but we don't want to be too obvious about it. <laughs> and that is making fun of Hollywood to the max at this point. Yeah. You know this that it still does, you know. My, Matt, you want to say something? Did they mention Capra in that in that whole exchange? Yeah. Yeah. I think they did. I think they did. I think they did. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be like Capra. I want to be socially significant. I want to speak to the heart of, you know, I want to speak to the hearts of men, but with a little sex, with a little sex. And at one point they say, they say, he says, you know, look at how this has been hold, held over for five weeks. That's almost like theater talk. We don't really mm -hmm. hear people talk about cinema that way so much, but you can tell that some of his theater background. And then he says, well, they, it died in Pittsburgh. He's, he says, well, what are they doing in Pittsburgh? He says, if they did, they would live in Pittsburgh. <laughs> Just in these few minutes, there's all of this, like, you know, there's all of this, you know, longing and drama and activity and dialogue and, you know, the screwball and the, it's just, it's just really great that within those first few minutes, you've got all that going on. Yeah, well, those first funny. minutes, I think, um, you know, obviously the most obvious thing is where brother were out there, but that, those first those first five mm -hmm. minutes probably inspired, you know, half of the Coen brothers' entire filmography. Right, because they ended up doing Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, they're themselves, which was <laughs> right. kind of in a screwball kind of way. And right. yeah, but I thought about that too. Oh, brother, we're out there. It's also, um, 
I mean, the Hudsucker proxy is, I mean, is, is, it basically is that first five minutes stretched out into like, you know, yes. an entire film. Um, yes. Hail Caesar is that first five minutes mm-hmm. stretched out into an entire film. Um, yeah. uh, oh my God, the, the Coen brothers are, are Preston Sergis. Like they're trying to do Preston Sergis. I never thought very of much it. So. But, right. but, but, but it's, it's, but it doesn't, it, they don't have the, the same warmth in their heart. They actually have, no, it is ridiculous and everyone's ridiculous and you're all absurd. I mean, Barton Fink's a little different, but like, but like, but those those moments of like, I want to make a movie for the Comet Man, you know, like, and we're gonna hear from him, and not, and not just in the picture, you know, and not just a postcard, you know, like this, this kind of just like, you know. That, that, well, and it's also, you know, these were real people too. They they had certain experiences. Now we kind of have this Hollywood elite. It's so interesting that one of the things Preston Sergis said was, "I love this about Hollywood." You know, unlike New York, he used to say, "When you come to Hollywood, it really is about talent." It's not about who you know, and you're like, oh, God, that has really changed. Because that was the case, apparently, then. You could come with a script under your arm and, and actually have a shot because it wasn't so closed. And so these people were real people. Veronica Lake grew up in Brooklyn. She was a little scrapper. Mm-hmm. She was kind of like, you know, middle class. And, you know, so when she, when he walks into the, you were, we, so we should actually kind of go in a certain order, I guess, but you know, you mentioned when they're first following them, even in the beginning, when when they're following him in the in that uh, uh, like a, it's almost like trailer. A, yeah, when they're following him in the trailer, you know, and it's like, and he's just like, you know, kind of like leave me alone, like I'm trying to find out what suffering's like, and they're they're following him in this, this like giant trailer, <laughs> where like they have chefs, they have you know cuisine, mm-hmm. they have they have everything that you could possibly imagine, and his whole staff is there, of course, <laughs> you know, and he ends up at the widow house, you know, and he's he's trying to survive that. He almost gets himself trapped at the widow's house. She wants to. She wants to make him the next <laughs> mister, right? Right, because that goes by so quickly. You know, he ends up trying to escape. He falls <laughs> out the window. You know, he's he's hitchhiking. Yeah. He learns he has to hitchhike to get around. Uh, when he finally meets Veronica Lake, the girl, and she's dressed in that. I mean, I feel I really love the Veronica Lake character in this movie. I'm like, that is that's me. I'm like wearing these really elegant clothes. She's almost broke, you know, but she's sitting in this cafe and she buys him food, thinking he's a hobo. And she goes into you remember the thing she goes into about Mr. Smearcase, you know, the casting director, you know. Oh yes, if you you know. Oh yes, Mr. Smearcase. Oh no, Mr. Smearcase. You know they're made. They're sort of making fun of the casting couch here. Mm. And he asks her a question about Hollywood. She says, I don't know. I never got close enough to it to know. You know, mm-hmm. Preston Sturgis clearly had a very wonderful, humorous, ironic, perceptive understanding of the Hollywood system, without a doubt. When you watch that scene alone, again, like the scene in the beginning, you get another one of these Preston Sturgis moments where the dialogue is very witty, very clever. And it gives you, it gives the audience an insight into Hollywood that it wouldn't normally have. We forget now we have scandal galore and it sells and everything else. But at this time, the studios were very protective of their stars, very protective of their stars' lives. And a lot of what went on inside wasn't really known to the public. Mm -hmm. So Preston Sturgis also broke some rules at this time in 1941 by exposing some of these elements of the studio system 
and we have to remember this is still the Hayes Code. So we definitely get the sense that Veronica Lake was expected to dine with some of these people, possibly sleep with some of these people without right saying it, you mm. know? So it's really interesting to watch that scene too. And they end up, of course, mm. in his very fancy car, which he's wondering where the hell did you get this car from? Because you're a hobo. And of course, when the police pull them over and he says, well, you know, what does he say? Something like, uh, he says, just remember, there's nothing they can do. And I love that whole segue where they fade into, they're both in jail. And he says, she says, what did you say? He said, there's nothing they can do. <laughs> they're both in prison, you know, uh, on either side of each other. So that Preston Sturges really, we have to give him a lot of credit for comedy. We realize how many comedies now employ those kinds of tricks and those kinds of, of, uh, of moments in comedy. So, yeah. And that's 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 the beginnings of their journey together. So you gotta love that. Isn't Kim Basinger supposed to be like a, a Veronica Lake lookalike in LA Confidential? Oh, oh, she's she is a Veronica mm. Lake. In fact, the way the scene opens mm. up, remember now. Okay, so I'll go back. So uh, James Elroy writes LA Confidential, which is the third novel in what he calls the LA Quartet. And, uh, and so in LA Confidential, uh, he's influenced by the, he says, by the autobiography of Mickey Rooney, when Mickey Rooney talks about going to a brothel with Milton Berle, where the, the, uh, the ladies of the evening look and are meant to look like movie stars. Okay. So he says he was influenced by that. So he actually, in throughout the movie, they talk about hookers cut to look like movie stars. They the first scene with Veronica uh, with uh, Kim Basinger, they cut over to her from a scene from This Gun for Hire with Veronica Lake. So we're meant to understand mm -hmm. that she is literally supposed to look like and be like a Veronica Lake, and that's what she's selling to her customers is this glamour. And this idea that these guys can sleep with Veronica Lake. So you you hit the nail on the head, Matt. She is literally supposed to be the Veronica Lake lookalike and prostitute. Mm -hmm. And according to a man named Garson Kanan, who was working in the 30s with Samuel Goldwyn, there was another brothel that was up in the Hollywood Hills that had a madam that looked just like Mae West. And the prostitutes who looked like, say, Carol Lombard, for example, what they would have the prostitutes do is they'd actually read the trades, what was happening in these actresses' lives. And so when you came to this brothel as a customer, the hookers not only acted like hookers, ladies of the night, they would know all the details of the actress they were portraying. Wow. So talk about, oh, I'm working on this movie. Wow. Now. And I'm working on that movie now, you know. And next I have this and I'm working with this. And that's how, that, you know, it's like, this was Hollywood. Yeah. Even in the 1930s, there was some sinning going on. No, you know, it's not uh, enough. You know, the, the indignity, you know, it's not enough to do one thing. You have to master multiple skills. I mean, you know, I mean, I guess it's a higher paid profession, you know, or those locations were higher paid. But I mean, that's a lot to deal with, you know. Lots you imagine, people. you know, uh, well, I guess, yeah, if you worked at like a Hollywood, uh, uh, Planet Hollywood, you know, you might be expected to, you know, be a waiter as a character, 
But you know, it's like having two jobs at the same time. Yeah. It's a lot of work. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And as Veronica Lake indicates in Sullivan's Travels, Mr. Smearcase, oh, Mr. Smearcase, Mr. Smearcase <laughs> being the casting director's name that she's making up. Uh, if you were a casting director, I'd have to pretend like you're funny. Oh, <laughs> Mr. Smearcase. <laughs> I'd have to go out to dinner with you. God knows what will happen from there. And so that was the other aspect of it was at mm. one point, I think uh, there were a couple of actresses briefly. Uh, they say Louise Brooks very briefly was a highly paid call girl and uh, Barbara, Barbara Payton. I'm trying to remember her name. Maybe it was Barbara Payton. Or was another actress who for a while was doing prostitution. So it was, it was the case that actresses, especially in Hollywood, were not necessarily considered to be very high class uh, when Joan Crawford was dating a someone from the Cudahy family which was an upper crust east coast family they pretty much rejected her she was an actress she was a dancing girl it's like god you're practically a prostitute already kind of attitude oh wow yeah oh yeah so I mean if we if we put all of this into the context of the golden age and this is becoming sort of the middle high point of the golden age the 19, 1939 saw the greatest, greatest, uh, some of the greatest films and greatest receipts for box office in Hollywood up to that point, because you're talking about movies like Stagecoach, Stagecoach, The Women, Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, that was all 1939. So coming out of that, Hollywood was really in the peak of its golden period, and yet the country was in devastation. So the people they're showing in Sullivan's Travels, um, are not too far away like if you look at the the photographs from Dorothy Lang and things like this and you mentioned Grapes of Wrath you know which was about the dust bowl a lot of the Oklahoma farmers moving migrating to California and their struggles like this there was a realism and that was kind of the humor of it he's walking through this realism of something he really doesn't fully understand you know and then we see no good deed goes unpunished because when he decides he wants to give them money he ends up getting mugged. <laughs> so, <laughs> and thus begins. Well, I, think, I think that's just because, yeah, he's really walking around like an idiot. And I actually really kind of love that out, scene. Yeah. He's got money, <laughs> he's got money in his it's hand. It's like the beginning of the, uh, of the secret millionaire, you know, genre. Where yeah. these guys, you know, they just get to walk around pretending like they're low-level workers. And everyone just, you know, it's just so grateful, you know, everyone's just so nice to them. And I always wonder if there are cut scenes where people are mad, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm mad that you were here. Without Golden's, uh, without Sullivan's, travel, Sullivan's Travels, would there be an undercover boss? I mean, that's... Yeah, really yeah, yeah. I think that's the beginning of the genre. So, yeah. you know, that, yeah, that, that was kind of my attitude is like, good. <laughs> I wish he were dead. <laughs> that was the original one of the butlers. He was like, you know, like I really advise against this. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. He's like, sir, you don't understand. People who are suffering don't want to hear, don't want to rem be reminded of their suffering. You know, he's trying to explain to him. He's Which trying to explain to him. Really great too. One really? of the, one of the dynamics of the film is that like he's always insisting that he wants to learn how to suffer and be one of the common people. Um, but like his will breaks on multiple occasions so easily. Of course, there are the, you know, the funny kind of like plot developments that he can't control, like where a train is headed or, you know, this or that. But there are also moments like where they're at the diner and, you know, they have 
thanks to the kindness of a stranger, they've been given coffee and donuts for free, right? right? And, right. But he's like, where are we? You know, Las Vegas. Oh, and they go right away. They, you know, he escaped. <laughs> yes, he's out of there. Is there, what did he, I can't even remember what he called the truck. He said, is there a such and such here? He says, you mean that big thing out there? A land yacht. Yeah, yeah a land yacht. A land yacht. There you go again. <laughs> He, the guys, and the guy, and the guy behind the counter is like, "You mean that thing?" Because he doesn't even know the verbiage. He probably doesn't know what a yacht is. You know, he's running a lunch counter in the well, middle of nowhere. You no, know the guy doesn't know what a yacht is. What's very clear is that Sullivan doesn't know what a bus is. <laughs> oh, great point. Yes, he doesn't just say that bus out there. He says a land yacht. Good yeah. point. And you know, I like I I love the Veronica Calais character. I love how offended she is when she really, you know, at one point I she says, Oh, she says, You poor thing. He says, he says, I when when did you last talk to Lubitsch? Now Ernst Lubitsch was also a very popular comedic director. He looked up to Ernest Lubitsch. Lubitsch came before Sturgis, and he really looked up to him. That was kind of an homage. When she talks about, can you introduce me to Lubitsch? When you were talking to, when were you talking to Lubitsch mm. last? Oh, ma last, maybe that was a couple of days ago. He says, oh, you poor guy. She sees him like totally looking like, she really believes she's convinced this guy is for real. And she says, I know a director who is going to make a comeback. And he just, you know, shot himself in the head. And <laughs> she says, you wouldn't do that, would you? She says, not to your wallpaper. Yeah, that was really dark. I'm all for making fun of suicide. We should not because it's a good thing, because it's a sad thing, but because actually <laughs> for those of us who have ever contemplated it, to laugh at it is very healthy. And so, yeah, no, not on your wallpaper. When she actually sees his house, which we're talking about a highly successful director, not just any director in Hollywood. This house right, is unbelievable. Right. I mean, did you see that house, you guys? You're just like the ceilings. Yeah, it's a palace. Hey, Alice, and she's just yeah. like, I guess there's a pool. There has to be a pool, and she's so mad at him now because he's yeah. essentially he's misrepresented himself. And of course, this is also I like that point of view. I think without that, this movie would not succeed the way it does because we get the point of view of people like the butler, like Matt mentioned, like the butler, like like Veronica Lake, who are like, how dare you, you know, like say you're gonna find out what suffering is, and you're so privileged, you just can't know you're just never gonna know i think that's the thread we're getting throughout is this guy is just he's never gonna understand how ignorant he is he's so ignorant of what suffering is um and even after he experiences a certain amount of suffering but like you guys were saying he says you know hollywood producers don't end up in in prison for assaulting you know a train a, a train yard boss and the and guy the guy says, oh, they don't. But the fact of the matter is that, like, even though, like, you know, the guy, I mean, what should be defined? I don't know. But, like, the fact of the matter, he did hit somebody upside the head with a brick, right? Really? A or brick or a stone, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, he's a Hollywood producer. Let him go. <laughs> right? Like, we don't even... It's not even it's not even important enough to like know what the legal legal rigor and role was to even get him out of that situation because it's just like clearly, you know, like because he's right, no, though. he probably would thing. have paid a fine. He probably I'm not a whole a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> he would have he probably would have paid a fine and he would have walked away. 
And the fact was, because they didn't know he had money, they didn't even bother to suggest that he should pay something to get off uh, out of this situation. They're going to put him in prison. That was an interesting statement because this was right. also before yeah. we knew a lot about the prison system. So I really do think also Preston Surges is to be applauded for the fact that he really showed us because movies that followed um, like Caged, you know, with Eleanor Parker, this was a precursor to those movies that showed the actual some of the things that go on inside of a prison. Hmm. And it's not pretty, is it? It's not pretty. Um, the chain gang leader is pretty brash. And the guy says, oh, he's actually a nice guy. He lets you go to the picture show. You know, he, he abuses mm -hmm. you horribly, but he does let you go to the picture show. He's one, you know, and he gives you turkey on Christmas. You know, he's one of the best bosses. He's one of the nicest. It's like, he's one of the nicest abusers out there. You should be very happy that you're with him instead of with somebody yeah. else. It's not, it's not a pretty picture. And I think, one of the memories that stick with me in this movie, I love, and you, I, you guys can, I want to hear more about what you thought of this, but I love the scene when they march in the convicts into the church. That's probably the best shot scene of the entire film. I love really, it. Really great, great scene. Yeah. You know, Matt, what, what did you think about that? I love that preacher singing that song while they're walking in. Let my people go. Oh, yeah. What? Yeah, I want to. I want to catch. I've caught fire. Let me please talk more about that scene. I I feel it. I feel the spirit has moved me like the like the preacher, you know, um, and the scene is what I find really what I find really interesting about that scene is that what plays into it is a series of contradictions. So this is one of the first films I wondered when we were going to strike upon a classic Hollywood film that would have like an actual uh, black caricature character like racist character and we have one in the form of the cook the cook um is a classic um you know racist stereotypical trope now what i find really interesting is reconciling that character you know like the buck teeth is like you know are you like this you know swirling things and so it's a racist trope um but then this film highlights the black church and the black min black minister, and it's a very humanizing moment. This is probably the most powerful scene of the film. The, this set of scenes that sets up that particular shot, and they're singing the spiritual, and they're you know advocating that all men are equal and free. Um, so yeah, so this is during the time of segregation, and this definitely appears to be in the South. So this is a statement against the South, against you know the the condition of the prisons, the chain gain, and of segregation in the South. So it's very 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 interesting, and I think that's kind of like emblematic of the whole movie is that the movie has all of these tensions between like racism and and equality. Um, you know, saying the poor belong in their place and the rich belong in theirs and like, no, you know, egalitarianism, you know, so it's, there's a lot of contradictions, but what I love about that shot in particular, Gene, is that that might actually be the most radical statement of the entire film and just surprisingly radical because it's a visual cue when they're, when, when they're singing this song um, about setting people free 
you know, uh, uh, the biblical Moses, this the spiritual about uh, Moses and setting people free, you have close-ups of people in chains, you know, prisoners. So in effect, it's vis visually acute to say, you know, let's abolish prisons or let's free all the prisoners or at least and end, let's stop segregation too yeah or at least have... end chain games you know mm -hmm. so that's that's really really powerful in a screwball comedy <laughs> that he definitely that made a screwball comedy which yeah. then you know the final you know um, message of the film is make them laugh you know <laughs> make them laugh um, and that that's the important thing. But we have this moment in this one scene where Preston Sturgis is, is, is telling us that he thinks that, yeah, that segregation, you know, needs to be abolished and, and chain games, at least, if not all, you know, prisons uh, yeah. need to be abolished. So I, yeah. I was really, really struck by that moment. I thought that was incredible. I, what do I, you I, think, Matt? Yeah, I'd love to hear Matt's thought on that too. We can't hear you, Matt. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, thought, I thought it was good. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the reality would be that that chain gang would be a lot more black than it was. I mean, I think there was like one black guy in the chain gang. <laughs> yeah. The reality uh, is that it would be like, you know, these, these good, you know, church going folk opening the doors to, to a chain gang that's primarily white. Um, with like one or two black members of chain gang. I don't, I don't think that would be how it looks. Now I'm not saying there wouldn't be white people in the chain gang. I'm just saying it wouldn't be like, I think there was like, you know, like 80, I don't know how many people, maybe like 20, 30 people in the chain gang and there's like two, two black people in the chain gang. So I don't yeah. think that, that, that's, I don't think that's realistic um, uh, given, you know, we're talking about the 1940s, we're talking about, you know, um, so I don't think that's realistic. And then just to see like, you know, the magnanimity, magnanimity, mag, you know, magnanimous black church opening up and saying you're just as good as us and and don't make them feel bad and don't make them awkward i mean i feel not i feel like no, I, feel, I feel like that's true i mean people who are not in prison looking toward people are but the idea that um that there i mean there, there would just be more black people in the chain gang i mean it's just as simple as that um so i think that 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 is that is an error um i think that but we mentioned later on the scene where you're talking about um when you're talking about uh uh, the the end right where it's got all the the the, the montage of laughter it's kind of like I don't know it's kind of weird because like Preston Sturgis kind of like love letter to, to himself yeah <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. laugh and it's not like this like series of people like laughing throughout I mean the whole thing opens with like to all the gestures and all the people who have made laugh through the centuries so now dead you know this like you know this this what a noble thing to bring humor into the world in this you know chaotic you know maelstrom we're all is the storm, but for the smile of a child, whatever the hell he opens it with, right? But, but like you're not, you're not talking about all the people, you know, all the all, all the all the class clowns, and, and then like it ends with this like you know like ha ha ha, everyone's like you know, take that Capra, you know, like, I, I know, like the the the. the, the you know, like uh, or. Oh, you know what? I accepted it a little bit more because I loved that when they were talking about his making Oh Brother Where Art Thou and he said I haven't suffered enough to make Oh Brother Where Art Thou. At least he gives us that. At least he acknowledges that much. 
I do love that scene in the church. I love that character of the Reverend. I'm trying to remember the name of the actor, but I just loved him. I thought he was amazing. And I think at one point, Joel McCrea says, um, he starts laughing. He says, am I laughing? You know, I mean, I think that many of us have had a point of suffering where we kind of seem to forget what laughter is if you've gone through terrible, terrible experience and trauma. Um, so he clearly had some understanding, but yeah, the, that was, I agree, that was a little bit heavy handed at the end with all the faces <laughs> of the people laughing. Was a little bit heavy handed. Um, but I, that was the, the part that sticks with me the most is when he says, I, I just, I haven't suffered enough to make Oh Brother Where I Go. I, I mm. think that, God, now as you're talking, you guys, I'm reminded of, I don't know if you remember a movie that was pretty, that was for its time and still is. Uh, a very has elements of controversy and of course social significance and that's a movie by uh, directed by Stanley Kramer called The Defiant Ones it was Tony Curtis mm. and um, uh, Sidney Poitier and they were two escaped prisoners from a chain gang they're oh. chained together so it was a black man and a white man and what happens the controversial element was that they had managed, I don't know, the spoilers, guys, if you haven't seen the Defiant Ones, I shouldn't say this, but have you guys seen it? Or I don't know if I should be giving anything away. Spoil away. Should I go give it away? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. It is from the 60s or 50s. Um, so the big controversy especially was that they managed to separate themselves. They managed to cut through their, their, their chains with a bolt cutter. And Sidney Poitier makes it on a train and Tony Curtis doesn't. Mm. And it's what's, I'm not going to give this part away, but it's what Sidney Poitier decides to do that became a real aspect of, of controversy. So one of the things that, as you guys talked, I thought of, and this ties into what I just was talking about, is, is that it's almost impossible, in, especially in American history, to talk about class and poverty versus privilege without talking about race. Would you guys agree in American history now? I'm not talking about all histories, but I think in our history for sure. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Well, I don't think it's but, about, yeah, yeah. When we talk about race though, I don't think it's, it's, it's when we talk about race, you're talking about colonialism, you're talking about war and conquest and, and history. I'm talking about of history, right? So I mean, yes. the, these relationships between people based upon um, you know, the origin of their forebears or, or what have you, and they moved around the world and are, are not, are not, are not, that, that is economic. Those are, I mean, those are historical and economic questions. So um, I don't think you could talk about um, the development of the past three, 400 years about places anywhere in the world without talking about, uh, you know, colonialism, without talking about war and conquest. Oh, yeah. So even if you're talking about, let's say, you know, working class of Belgium, well, the working class of Belgium um, are, are so much of the industrialization is taking uh, taking place on the backs uh, or, 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 or in, in the severed hands of the Congolese, right? So that's kind of like, it's still tied to that. And that's not to disqualify, that's not saying like, and therefore, fuck their unions. I'm not saying that, I'm, I'm saying, but like, it, it, but, but that's why 
there are like, you know, that's why their industries exist. Their industries exist because of that, of that. So like, you know, the, the, the solution to these, these issues or problems, it has to, or, or at least the origin of the problem, the origin of the problem and therefore the solution, I would argue therefore the solution must be global, but the origin of the problem is, is tied to a global economy. And in the United States of America, it's not like there's something long, it's not, I mean, yes, the United States of America has far off distant colonies, but it has, you know, what we would describe as internal colonies. It has like, it has group, it has groups of people that um, for one reason or another um, have been, ex have been exploited at higher rates and have been subject to horrible brutality and a, a brutal education system. And um, the, the culture is based upon putting them down and all kinds of things, right? Uh, and we end up calling that racism as though it's like, you know, like, and then plus there's class nine, no, no, this is all Absolutely. So, um, yeah. And so I think that this movie it, at the end has like the uplift from, from the, from the, from the, from the church. And it is very inspirational, but like, I think that in a way it's kind of like, you know, like, I don't know, like the, there really should have been more, there really should have been more black people in the chain gang. I mean, to make it more accurate and mm -hmm. not just accurate, but also like, you know, like it, 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 it I, which is not to say there should have been white, and it's not which is not to say there shouldn't have been white people in the chain gang. I'm not saying that like yeah, you know that wouldn't happen. I mean that obviously did happen, you know, but like that's not actually accurate, and because and and, it, and its inaccuracy also kind of raises some questions. That's all. I wonder why. Yeah, I was just as you're talking, Matt. I'm wondering to myself. Maybe David, you have some illumination about this, just as a thought, because I don't know the answer. I'm not saying this knowing the answer. I wonder why Preston Sturgis made that decision. Well, I think I I think it was I think it was done either out of ignorance and um, you know okay I'm going to set the scene in the South but I'm going to have this chain gang and it just in his mind you know people or normal people you know whatever and that he's putting on this chain gang are white so that's just you know ignorance right. That's just ignorance of the actual issues or the actual, you know, population and and the the real factors. Or it's done intentionally to counterset that he wants to create like a clear black and white divide. But that's this is his idea of unity, right? That that right. that these white people are uh, on this chain game and they're they're bad or they're the they're the outcasts of society much like the poor in the earlier scenes are mostly white people and they're the outcasts of society. That's true too. Most that, that's that then yeah, most of the black characters would be in this church. So he's kind of like countering, you know, uh -huh. uh, racist narratives of like, these are good people. You can see they're good people because they're church folk. They're well-dressed. They're not shambly like these white people in, in this chain game. You know, they're well-dressed. They're singing, they're happy, they're hospitable, they're friendly. But still marginalized. Yeah, so it could have been in Yeah, an intentional um, an intentional divide and counterbalance to go up against, you know, his audience's perceived expectations, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, and considering that as you guys pointed out too, segregation was still alive and well. Maybe that was part of the emphasis. Um, I guess we don't know unless someone who knew uh, Preston Sergis could tell us. But that's that's an interesting insight. 
um, that it might have been deliberate for contrast, or it could have been surely out of some kind of ignorance. Yeah. In fact, yeah. what I remember too, now I'm remembering that when before the, the paper that Veronica Lake's holding where she sees his picture, she's the first one to realize she's alive, of course, and she's on set. She, whoo, you know, she throws the paper, she goes running, yeah. you know, she's dressed in these crazy clothes. And clearly I could tell by looking at it that this is Paramount Studio she's running through. You can mm. see that. And um, I remember now that the paper said something about Kansas City. So I guess he was somewhere in Kansas. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know, maybe then there, I don't know if there would have been, I, well, it's possible, Matt, still that there should have been more. Well, more, Matt, um, Matt's been through well, Kansas City. He, he, he yeah, had, uh, yeah, yeah. it's very much the South, right? It has a, well, actually, actually, actually Midwest, it's, but it's, uh, it's kind of like those places where it's like, is this the South or is this the Midwest? And it's a very contentious. Illinois type. is the same. Illinois, yeah. Southern Illinois is like that too. And the very accents and everything. Question. It's the Midwest, but it, you're like, is it the South though? So yeah, yeah. yeah. very contentious question. Um, but if there's a black church, I mean, then there's the, the, the there's, uh, there's people they could put in jail. So, I mean, like, you know, strike me as Southern Baptist, you right. know, they what, I'm saying, what I'm saying is if there, if there, if there's, if there's a black church, there's a black community, if there's a black community and you know, the, the legacy of the chain gang is throwing people in jail for no reason. Um, then the chain gang would be, you know, yeah. would be black. I mean, it would, I'm not saying it would be completely black, but it would, it would be largely black. So that's a good again, point. And again, again, I'm not talking about like it's like half white and half black in the film. It's like almost all white. And there's like right, 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 right. Yeah. Black yeah. Shirt. yeah. Oh, I just had a thought. Maybe it's because this is one of the nicest abusive bosses that you'll ever come across. Maybe that's why they send the whites to that guy. They said the black <laughs> like really need a bosses who don't take you to the picture show. Maybe that's what's going on. That would require some explanation. But uh So I oh you have you have appointment? No. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah. I wanted to go back in time to um one of the things, one of my other favorite parts of this movie, um, where it where it deals with the social messaging was uh, through the mostly um, dialogue-less montages of poverty that we got. And this is where, you know, this film has, it, it's been a Hollywood uh, um, spoof. It becomes a screwball comedy. Um, and then it becomes, there's this, you know, strange pivot that where it actually becomes about, it, it becomes a social message film. It, it, it almost becomes a documentary. There's a level of realism that's adopted, a level of attention to detail um, that shows you that if uh, Sturgis hasn't, you know, lived this, he's at least read well about it because there's a richness of detail in the scene, or in these scenes, a real care that's put into uh, portraying you know, these people huddled together for warmth in a shelter or in, um, you know, in church pews, you know, seeing this play out or, um, you know, people waiting for trains. Um, we get humorous, you know, moments of that beforehand where, I mean, that's probably one of my favorite visual gags of the film. There are a lot of visual gags that I feel that, that fall flat um, for me personally. But I do love when he's just hanging out. I do love a good hang, you know, when someone's 
you know, in between two things, you know, and and he's just hanging there and she's trying to pull him in and yes and, and, and the guy and the guy in the one of the hobos on the train says amateurs well <laughs> yeah yeah I, I definitely say that 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 middle part struck me and i think it i think it would have i think you know there's stir you know sturgis definitely pats himself on the back at the end of this film but i think <laughs> um you know, to a certain extent, he he was worthy of some back padding because I think what he did with this film is that he probably, by having a main character who's rich and having these butlers and these Hollywood executives and all these cynics and, you know, all of these other people and kind of like making fun of, you know, the other, the writers and the other directors, you know, out there and saying, oh, you know, maybe they're a bunch of hypocrites and all of this, but they may have actually suckered in some of the audience who wouldn't go see The Grapes of Wrath, who wouldn't go see, you know, some of these other films who, you know, they, they love comedy of manners films or screwball comedies that, that are mostly about the rich. Um, right. So I think what he's doing with this film is that he's pulling in an audience, he's pulling upon some of these tropes um, that are accessible to rich people, that are accessible to people who, you know, I'm sure at the time, and you still hear this sentiment a lot from, from a lot of people, is say, I don't want to watch that because that's too ugly. I don't want to see poverty it's too ugly. I can't, I can't bear to see it. I want to watch nice films. I want to watch, you know, the BBC, Downton Abbey, you know, whatever, right? You know, so I think with this kind of film, he may have, you know, pulled in people to, to acknowledge this, this form of poverty, what was going on with, with some of the people who, I don't know if I could say needed to see it the most because, you know, some of them would see it and be like, ha ha, I don't care. <laughs> let them, <laughs> you know, let them be cold. But, but if there were any sympathetic, you know, eyes and ears out there, any sympathetic hearts, you know, to, to then, you know, to see it, to be tricked, I guess, into seeing it, um, I, I think it, it would have been really powerful. And for people who, you know, just uh, common audience people to see that reflected, um, I think, I think would have been really powerful. Uh, I think you're right. I, I would, that would have been interesting to see it. And of course, at this time, we know that for the most part, motion pictures were, were, were affordable to most people. Um, and that was, they, that was always the thing is like the motion, motion picture is art for the masses. It's, Irving Thalberg was the one who said one day it will be hailed as an art form. It really, it started out with penny arcades and mm. Nickelodeons and things like this. And so it really was considered very lowbrow entertainment, actually. Uh, you know, just a step above burlesque, you know, it was very, very lowbrow. And so at this time, you know, you've got people wanting to see, to elevate it, you know, to go further with it, to, to see what the medium can do, how, how it can affect the mind's of people, how it can change society. And, you know, in the midst of that, I mean, we've all met that person. They call them, for example, the bleeding heart liberal, the person who has grown up in, in perhaps high white privilege, who's like, oh, you poor suffering people, I just want to help you so, so desperately. 
you know, and so in a way I kind of, I do, I do applaud Preston Sturgis for being like, what the hell do you know about it? We didn't, you know, he was probably one of the first people to say that in motion picture. What do you, what the hell do you know about it? What do you know about stuff like, what, how do you understand it? You know, so I, I give him credit for that, for being willing to speak up about it. I know one of the people he's probably taking a poke at is the, uh, the director, uh, Leo McCary. Leo mm. McCary was not very well liked by a lot of people in Hollywood. A lot of people, he started out as like a crew guy, a grip. And he would go in and be like, I have the story of the century. And, you know, sometimes it wasn't even getting made, but he, I have the story of the century. And I know Garson Kanan talked about him, like, what a con artist, you know? And I think it was Billy Wilder, because Leo McCary won the Academy Award for Best Picture for a movie called Going My Way, which was like another kind of like heartfelt, but kind of light heartfelt movie that he was famous for. Mm. Kind of did a lot of stuff like that. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people thought Billy Wilder should have won for, um, for his uh, double indemnity. Mm. And so when Leo McCary was going up to receive the Academy Award uh, for Best Director, Billy Wilder tripped him. <laughs> and he fell. Wow. Spanish his big oh, moment, he went crawling. So, so definitely Preston Sturges is also poking a little bit about Leo McCary saying, well, what do you, what do you know about this stuff? What makes you mm. think you can be the voice of something so meaningful uh, if you don't understand the meaning? Mm. So, um, so I do, I give, I mean, I think at that, in that way, like you said, David, I think he, he can, he can get a little pat on the back there because he has been kind of mocking himself a lot throughout this picture too. Yeah. Give him, he's giving him a little bit of love, himself a little bit of love, of course, because it comes at the end, you know, rather than, you know, the mocking at the end, he leaves us with a, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not such a bad guy that I make people laugh, even though I don't really understand suffering. So here I yeah. am on my private plane, you know, I'm a great guy. And these guys, my presence know, is charity. <laughs> I'll give my gift to the world, you know, and, and yet, you know, you, I, I also, I am also in a way glad because I do think about the faces of all those people because there are people suffering now and you feel badly about it. Do you feel badly enough to sell everything you own and go help those people? That's the question. I haven't done that at this point. I haven't done that. Um, does it make me a bad person? Does it make me a good person? Does the art make a difference? I mean, we're all artists and poets here. So we hope that what we do has a transformative effect. That's, I think, what most artists are longing for. Right. I hear people so often say, well, you know, are you rich? Should you be rich? Should you be famous? It's like, I don't think those are the questions the artist, artist needs to ask. I think the artist really needs to ask, am I communicating, am I transforming? If that comes out of it, fine and good. But if that's the ultimate goal, you might as well just make a sex tape and have your mom pedal it for you. Because if it's just- Your mom! <laughs> I'm talking about Kardashian. That is what happened, actually. I was so disgusted by your theoretical <laughs> idea. But that actually did happen, yeah. That did happen. Oh, that's wow. that's oh. Kim Kardashian. That's Kim Kardashian. Yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. glad you had that outburst for the clarification of us and the audience. Yeah, you know you're right. Have your mom, have your mom, if your name is Kim Kardashian, pedal your sex tape. I mean, it, you, if 
fame and fortune is all you seek. And I think that's also something we can applaud about Preston Sturgis. And Matt was saying, coming full circle, you know, how, how is this guy doing two films a year? So it's for like so, so a Kardashian name, you know, I mean, that name used to be associated with getting, you know, getting murderers off who clearly, you know, killed people. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. I know it used to have that meaning and yeah. now it's just shopping. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think that, um, ultimately <laughs> what I come away with, <laughs> I, mean, I think, I think that just blew my, my marbles. I think I just lost my marbles contemplating. Yeah. 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 Kardashian. I'm sorry I brought her into it. So I, I actually, I was so curious years ago, a few years ago, I, I bought the autobiography of Veronica Lake. Oh, cool. Autobiography as told to another writer. And it actually did do very well. Um, it was a very interesting book. It was one of the first, because this came before books like uh, Mommy Dearest. So the first sentence out is, Veronica Lake is a Hollywood creation. Hollywood is good at doing this sort of thing. It's wow. proficiency of transforming little Connie Ackleman of Brooklyn into a sultry, sensuous hmm. Veronica Lake was proved by the success of the venture. And the subject, me, was willing and in some small ways able. Now that's a very interesting statement, an opening hmm. to an autobiography. I love the opening, Veronica Lake is a Hollywood creation. And those are very true words. Most of the actresses of the golden age truly were creation, studio creations. And if they saw that you had sex appeal, you were transformed into a uh, kind of a fantasy, a male fantasy upon which they could project their longings and desires. And, you know, Veronica Lake one of the things I loved about her, like in this movie, she, like I said, she lobbied to be in this movie. Kristen Sturges was not seeking her out. He would have much preferred someone like a Barbara Stanwyck in the mm. role worked with before. Uh, Veronica Lake was thought to be kind of a love goddess, but she proved herself with her comedian. Oh, job. really? She was actually a highly intelligent person. She really was very intelligent. And as, as were a lot of these very beautiful women, but like we talked about before, Jean Tierney mm -hmm. once said, if you, once you stop being beautiful, you can, at least you, you know, if you can be useful. A lot of these women, their beauty was so preeminent and it was their real estate. And when they got older and they were no longer perceived to be beautiful in the youthful traditional sense of Hollywood and the sex symbol, you know, traditional tr tradition of Hollywood, you know, what was left well, a lot of these women were, were so bright and so brilliant, and yet a lot of them didn't know what to do with themselves because their beauty was so prominent to the world that when the, the, when the idea of the youthful beauty faded, what happened to them? Veronica Lake was no stranger to that. She ended up dying at the age of 49 of cirrhosis of the liver. She basically drank herself mm. to death, Veronica Lake. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah. So, and she was an exceptional talent. She could fly a plane, too. She learned how to fly oh, wow. a plane. Yeah, she was a fascinating, she was a fascinating person. And uh, she was one of the first people to walk out on Hollywood at about the age of 30. She said, I've had enough. 28, 30. <laughs> um, oh, that's great. 
I want it to be a sex symbol. I'm going to cut all my hair off and, you know, I don't know if we have questions from anybody. We haven't even addressed it. Yeah, we got, we got some statements or some mm. uh, interactions. I was hoping we'd have some. Let me, let me, let me, let me pull them up. I think what's great about, uh, uh, yeah, about her, she reminded me a lot of uh, Rita Hayworth and Gilda in this film, in which she comes off very strong, very glamorous right away, very sexy, um, very much in control, and her dialogue is rapid fire, and it's quick, and she's, um, you know, very disarming of the man, very, very strong, very, very smart, um, and um, and then she kind of you know boils down to becoming gooey and pliable yeah. at the end. They have that yeah. that similar kind of you know where she's almost a femme fatale you know at, at first in in this movie, which plays which is kind of funny. It's kind of an interesting way to introduce this character who's who's actually on her way out of Hollywood, but she's yeah. still dressed to the nines. She's dressed yeah. like she's yeah. going to. Yeah. Know, a Hollywood yeah. premiere or something. You just um, love it. You just yeah, love it. yeah. So that's actually pretty interesting. And, and as far as her on-screen presence uh, goes, yeah, I found her similar to like uh, a little bit to uh, Rita Hayworth in in, in her look and to uh, Bacall, Lauren Bacall, yeah. where they yeah. both have that really deep voice. And I wonder, like, what was it about Hollywood movies at this time where they get these young, thin, short actresses with these deep voices? Why? I'll tell you why? how they did it. I'll tell you, there was, there were, it was twofold how they did it. Yeah. The first was everyone under contract to a studio got vocal coaching, especially no. the women. That was huh. number one. Yeah. Number two, that's why a lot of these women started smoking oh okay from from people like i don't know if veronica lake ever smoked uh but she may have at times to lower the tone of her voice i know for a fact uh that jean tyranny did it because she thought she sounded like mickey mouse or Minnie mouse oh okay yeah and so did grace kelly grace kelly was horrified when she discovered that her the way her voice carried in the theater she felt she sounded like some kind of high-pitched squealer. So she started That's so funny. That's so funny. I mean, yeah, yeah. Because there have been studies that have been done. And then, of course, you know, Marilyn Monroe comes in, you know, later with the really high-pitched voice and becomes the standard of sex. So I wonder for, you know, decades, so I was as a symbol. So I wonder who, who was it that comes, you know, at this early on point that, you know, was was that standard for the deep voice well i've heard of a sex symbol but how do you become a sex standard that's like (laughs) (laughs) well if you're a symbol you're a standard you know you know i'll say one way veronica lake veronica lake and this was years this was years before billy wilder and the seven year itch and Marilyn Monroe in the white dress standing over the subway grating and her skirt and her skirt comes up Veronica Lake was working on her first significant role. She had a strong supporting role in a movie called I Wanted Wings, which Mm. if you've seen Top Gun is pretty much like I Wanted Wings. I Wanted Wings. She was on an airfield, actually shot it on an airfield. They wanted to get a realism. This was again, that kind of 
the 40s started that kind of documentary style, even in a narrative film. And what what happened was like some kind of a DC bomber or something flew by and there's a picture of her where she's holding her skirt down because literally it just gone by and and the skirt is almost blowing up her her legs. And that picture, which was a promotion for I Wanted Wings, literally made her a movie star almost overnight when that picture was released. And wow. that was before Marilyn Monroe. Wow. Yeah. Veronica Lake in the in, during World War II was the sex standard. Mm. She was it. And mm. they had, in they, fact, they had they had instructional the video. Standard. Her hair, her hair, the famous fall. Oh so yeah. Popular that women were getting it caught in machinery. She did a promotional video for the government wow. pulled her hair back to prevent women from having their hair ripped out because she was so popular. Her vision of beauty was considered to be the standard of beauty in the Warriors. Veronica Lake had a wow. huge I'm impact on culture. Getting people getting their hair caught in machines and their scarves caught in machines. And that's been like kind of that's what I call a standard. They're the real that's problem. A, this is why there are standards, right? Standard. <laughs> that's a standard. And yep. you know, to this day, this look in Hollywood, you know, mm. at the awards shows, that all started with Veronica Lake. That she really oh, still wow. has a certain standard of Hollywood glamour that if you look at pictures of the stars like this going to awards, that that's Veronica Lake. That's still Veronica Lake. So her standard of beauty and sexuality is still today hailed as the symbol of Hollywood glamour, of mm. Hollywood beauty, of Hollywood stardom. That is true. That is true. Wow. All right, so we have uh, some comments. Um, Karina says, I love the storytelling. Really appreciate mm. it. Yeah. Um, Douglas Jacobs says, uh, Veronica Ooh. Lake is amazing. An odd mixture of melancholy, friendliness and humor with an edge. Uh, Doug says, asks, uh, how much does Sullivan's travels have echoes uh, with Gulliver's travels into unknown lands? Oh, oh. Yeah, I think there's definitely like the Oh Brother Where Art Thou kind of shout out and that being like uh, tied to the Odyssey. Um, yeah, this definitely has the, the, the uh, Gulliver's travels vibe. It has that, um, you know, we're, we're going from place to place and especially like the, the part with the, uh, the farm wives at the, at the beginning, you know, these two, these two spinsters and, and there is a great dialogue I wanted to give a shout out to from that. He tries to hold his hand <laughs> during the, he's like pulls it away. He, <sighs> he says the, the one who's particularly hot and bothered over him, he says to her sister, I've never done anything that I'm ashamed of. <laughs> really great <laughs> because not to say that she's done any I haven't done anything that you would consider immoral I, I just haven't done anything that I would be ashamed of so uh, but yeah that's real great because that's kind of like uh, you know in the Odyssey there's the sirens and that's the witch that's, and, what you know, it's, that's yeah. it yeah, that's so it think, that they're trying to keep him there because they talk about how long he's going to stay and um and he has to break free so i think yeah there there are a series of episodes that he goes through um you know these trials 
and I think the film might have actually been a little bit better for it if 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 some of these episodes had been more wacky and out there. But I think that's part of like the chain game, you know, because it's just so far afield. You it's know, so it, it plays. Well, the widow, do you remember the widow locks him in the room because he the, she, the the sister says, "Well, or, 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 was it her friend or sister? Her sister," and she says, "I hope that he'll stay." And she's like, mm. oh, he will. And she locks the door. <laughs> like, it's like, <laughs> oh my God. You know, like, I would walk out of there too. And then he looks up at the picture of the husband. He kind of looks at it like, oh yeah, you got stuck here. I'm not getting stuck here. You know, <laughs> looks at the suit he's wearing. Uh-uh, not me. You know, he has to get out through a window. It's very, you're right. I didn't think about that. But yes, because the yeah. old brother were out there, the Cohen brothers. I've got to say, of that whole film, one of the best things that they did in that film, well, I loved the music. I loved the mm -hmm. music in the Cohen brothers old brother were though yeah um the yeah the intersection that's a really good point david that i wonder if preston sturges was inspired in part by he had to have had a classical education anyone from privilege would have had a classical education and you would have read the iliad and the odyssey so i wonder mm -hmm. i wonder if that was the kind of thing he was thinking without outright saying and of course the cohen, cohen brothers had to tell us how clever they were by interesting yeah. things. They had to tell us how clever they were. <laughs> right, right. And for anyone who knows about the Coen brothers, if you ever want to talk to me about freaking No Country for Old Men, what the hell? I mean, I love Javier's <laughs> performance, but what about that movie? What was I supposed to get out of that? Anyway, that's another conversation. <laughs> I'm just saying, what? <laughs> why? Why did that oh, movie? Wow. Why? What is that? Oh, movie? wow. Um, so, oh, but going really? back to, yes, going back to Sullivan's travels, yeah. I, I think that's a really, I, I feel the same way, Doug, about, um, Veronica Lake. I really think that she proved herself mm. to have, because actually she went on to do the movie, um, I think it was Frederick March and, uh, I Married a Witch. She did another comedy. It wasn't, it, again, it was kind of like the system today. It wasn't easy to go from comedy to drama or vice versa to prove yourself. She was considered to be a very beautiful woman, not necessarily someone who was intelligent enough or talented enough to pull off comedy, but I think she mm -hmm. did. I think she did it very well. And I liked her presence and I liked the chemistry between her and Joel McCray. I like the scenes where they're at the pool and she, she knocks, she pushes him in. And then they all fall in again, you know, they, they, they go through this thing again. And she's, um, she has a genuine quality. He has a wife who he can't divorce because the wife likes the money that she gets from him. Uh, and she's got a boyfriend and everything. You know, this is all, this is all playing into what was going on in Hollywood because we have to remember in middle America, this would have been unheard of. You know, how dare you? They're basically, this got past the censors because it was subtle enough, but, but the, what they were basically talking about is a woman using another man, but committing adultery during the Hayes Code era. You know, so I mean, and then he can't marry Veronica and she's really upset because she genuinely cares about him because she came to care about him when he, she thought he was a hobo and had nothing before she knocks him into the pool. You know, so there, there's a kind of a quality about Veronica, she's beautiful, but she's got scruples and she's actually very kind hearted. 
so she's the kind of woman that you would want to be with because she's actually the kind of woman who could love you and not just love your money or love your status in Hollywood. I'm sure that was probably pretty hard to find. So I think she pulled it off pretty well. I do. I think the chemistry between them was very good. So I appreciated that. I think, I think that overall the, the performances, I think Preston Sturges definitely knew how to pick an actor. I think the actors in this film who had significant roles or any role, I think they pulled off their role well um, and maintained a certain amount of comedy even in the tragedy. So I, I have I have respect for this writer director Preston Sturges. I'm grateful to him as a writer director. Thank you, Preston Sturges, for making that possible. Um, do we have any more questions or comments? Or no, I was going to say that we're at an hour and a half. Um, ah, so we're ready to go. a little over an hour and a half. So um, maybe get our get our thoughts, and then uh, Dave, can you go last, and then introduce the movie for next week? Oh, okay. Oh, wow, that's right. Well, yeah, I kind of said my piece. I kind of said my piece. I'd like to hear more about what you guys have to say. Uh, well, what I, I mean, of course, I mean, it's, it's it's a great film. It's a very important film. Um, it's, it's really funny, and I think that um, you know, it, it really, I really that the first like five ten minutes of it though, when he when he's having the argument before he decides to do what he's gonna do, I think really, really huge, hugely influential. Um, that kind of little screwball back and forth, but that kind of. But that, that, but but screwball, not just about like, because you know, in a lot of screwball comedies, think about like the Philadelphia story, or something like that. It's usually mm -hmm. about like, people like talking about like, you know, like, blah, 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 you know, it's just kind of like these kind of back and forth things about being like rich, right? Or about like, you know, like, oh, right, right, right. Well, like you are, you haven't seen the left side of a barn since I'm, you know, like, you know, and they're just kind of the foibles of 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 the rich and ridiculous, right? <laughs> this was like. But they're usually talking about some aspect of their wealth. This little little commentary they had back that uses that kind of format, that kind of like you know back and forth, um, but about you know quote unquote the common man, right? And that kind of satirizing um, this kind of do gooder or whatever. One of the really early appearances of of that, and I think that 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 first like five minutes um, definitely influenced obviously the Coen brothers. I mean they they come up a lot um, in these discussions and. And they don't come up a lot. I mean, because I a lot of things they say about the Coen Brothers aren't actually very complimentary. I think the reason why the Coen Brothers come up so much is because they are such students of film, right? So obviously, when we watch them, very clear to see their their, their, their influence. Um, um, very clear to see, you know, they they, they took something of it. Um, and so I think that it definitely them, but but many others too. I mean, this is kind of this um, this way of like. Uh, you know, like, oh, we're, we're going to hear from that kid again. And not just, an, I'm not talking a postcard, you know, like, they kind of like, <laughs> they kind of like, that kind of like lampooning, but also like sending up this era of, you know, the, the 30s and 40s as being kind of like <laughs> a high ideal, you know, high idealism. And it's kind of funny, but it's also kind of like important. I think that the, the first like 10 minutes of film is extremely influential. Um, the whole film is pretty influential, but but that that first that first little little interaction, I think, is really really says a lot. Um, and uh, you know, comedy is important, and it's it's it, it's um, and it's a funny movie. I mean, it's a really funny movie. I mean, the whole it's it really is it, it uh, it's a pretty funny movie. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a classic. People should check it out, and um, and you can see what I mean in the first five ten minutes. You're reminding me of something, Matt. I have to say. You're reminding me that in the beginning you're right because the two the two producers with Sullivan Sully, you know, and they're going they're doing this back and forth. At one point they're like, when I was 13, 
you know, I couldn't even buy this. And the other one, like they're starting to compete with each other of how they had so much less than Sully did. And you know, that reminds me, right? And you know what that, you just remind me, that reminds me of, there was a skit with Monty Python, you know, where the, 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 all the guys in the, in the Hoity club are like, you know, you think you had troubled times, you know, my family and I, we all, there was like 50 of us, we lived in a shack and the other guys like, Oh, I, you know, it was, it was 16 people in a cardboard box, you know, so it's like, oh, <laughs> it's like, I think that you're right. I think that was an influence of this where you have these, these, you know, that you have this upper crust trying to prove that in fact, maybe they had hard times competing right. Right. is a thing that came up later on. So that's a really good point about those first 10 minutes that now you're reminding me very good. Yeah, that is true. That is really true. Um, so yeah, I would definitely say that uh, two films that you know, if you like, um, you you definitely should should watch this in order to gain um, you know insight as to where some of the ideas may have come from. Um, oh brother, where art thou? Definitely, um, and uh, and and as I mentioned before, singing in the rain. Um, this film <coughs> is really a mishmash of different things. There is a lot going on. Uh, some things more successful than others. There, there are moments where I feel like the film really does succeed as, as this comedy and as a satire. Um, and there are other scenes where I, yeah, that, that, that this film that's a comedy, I think utterly fails to be a comedy, not just intentionally because the director, you know, decided the writer director decided to go into a different direction those are actually some of my favorite moments of the film. I, I, I think might actually be the best moments of the film are when he was earnest about his intent to make a film about poverty, about, about hard times, about struggle. Ironically enough, um, those might be the best parts of the movie. Um, but still, I think there, there's something a little fractured going on with this film? Is it a satire of Hollywood on the rich, on the poor, on hypocrites? Is it a screwball comedy? Um, is it this? Is it that? Is it a social message film? Um, so there's a lot of splintering, which, which may actually play even more to this idea of it being an homage to the Odyssey or to um, Gulliver's Travels, especially. Um, because Gulliver's Travels, right? it's a series of different adventures and each adventure has a different theme. It has a different message to it. It almost belongs to a different genre. Um, so in that way, yeah, you know, may, maybe that's part of the point, I don't know. But um, there's definitely a couple of things where I feel like, um, you know, I would have loved um, I think Veronica Lake's character is one of the best characters in the film. Her, her performance is, is phenomenal. I would have loved if we had gotten more um, yeah. about her. I feel like her character would have been really, really enriched if we actually knew where she, where she was from, who she was, if we had gotten she had some name. <laughs> yeah, she a name. <laughs> if she had gotten a name, a backstory, something, you know. Um, her character is very murky, very undefined, um, but plays such a role in contrast to Sullivan that not knowing where, you know, at least like, you know, with Sullivan, we got that Harvard line, so we get some context. 
But even with him, too, a little more context would have been nice. Um, but, yeah, but I, I like both of them. I like the dialogue. I like some of the cinematography. It's really phenomenal in this film. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely say that that if you want to watch something that was experimental and on the cutting edge, uh, definitely for its time, um, in, in trying to blend genres and trying to, you know, mix tones, um, definitely interesting and probably pioneered a few, there's a scene, you know, where he's in the courtroom and the cinematography is all blurry and the music is disjointed. Yeah. You know, we love talking about the Twilight Zone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, I, I forgot, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That was so, interesting, so, wasn't it? Yeah. I definitely feel like that might have been a precursor of, yeah. of things to come, or maybe and, a little yeah, bit. And the of angles, those hard angles were very Twilight Zone-esque. You're right, David. I hadn't even thought about that, but you're absolutely right. The way that was filmed, it was in contrast to the rest of the movie, and it had a very Twilight Zone kind of way about it. Yeah, you're right. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, this is the thing. Preston Sturgis, there was a movie with Betty Hutton and Eddie Bracken where she portrays like someone who thinks she's, she thinks she might be a war wife, but she's not really sure. And we find out it might be because she's pregnant and somehow he gets that past the censors. We know that one of the things that he definitely likes to do is definitely push the envelope. And he does, so he is making social commentary, but he's not doing it in this very heavy-handed look at me making social commentary. I wonder what Preston Sturges would think of the Cohen brothers. I suspect he might kind of share some of that sentiments about the Cohen brothers. Do you have to hit us over the head with it to make a message? <laughs> Do you have to? You know, and he kind of does do a little bit of that by the end. But I, 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 yeah, I, I'm with you guys. I think there are a lot of great elements and there are a lot of reasons to see this movie. Because you're right, this movie clearly influenced other movies, later movies of its kind, and some that are are not as similar, but you can see, like we talked about Sunset Boulevard, that you can see the influence there. So I think something with that kind of influence is definitely worthy of watching, for sure. And with that, we have a movie coming up next week, which I think is David's pick, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. I usually, if 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 you and the audience haven't noticed the pattern, I usually try to bring on a special guest every week. But I was super distracted this week, so I totally dropped the ball on that one. But no fear, I, I've had I've been saving in my mind a number of different movies uh, to pull forth from, and I'm going to go ahead and pick one of my favorite films. We're going to cycle back to one of my favorite directors, the director of the first film we directed, uh, we uh, discussed rather on the Criterion Collective. We will be discussing Persona by Ingmar Bergman next week. Film, yeah, a film about performers as well, but very different context. Very different, <laughs> very different. Are we, all, are we all performers at that time? Life? All right. <laughs> all right. So, see you next week, Persona. Um, 